It's Thursday, October 19th, 2023, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, Senior Product Manager of the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel. Uh, Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in, in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes weekly about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, Bill, let's lead off uh, by talking about your article in California on your mind that was just released today. Uh, legislative season ended on Saturday. And as you know, Bill, that, that Governor Newsom might be doing some image crafting by showing restraint and moderation in his decisions to to veto um, specific pieces of legislation. Uh, the goal to showcase himself as a bit of a centrist should he pursue ambitions for higher office, or at least as you suspect. Um, quote, what Newsom also did was give the impression that he was channeling his predecessor, Jerry Brown, who famously subscribed to the canoe theory of governing. Paddle left, paddle right, stay in the mainstream. As you write, Bill, in a boilerplate veto message, Newsom took a page from Brown's playbook by pleading fiscal responsibility, quote, with our state facing continuing economic risk and revenue uncertainty, it is important to remain disciplined in considering bills with significant fiscal implications, such as this measure, Newsom said. An example of this uh, you talk about in your article is Newsom's seeming evasion um, to in his decision to veto a bill that would have allowed tw adults 21 or older to possess and use psychedelic me medicines found in mushrooms as a way to address mental health issues. Newsom signaled that he could have supported such a bill, but that it lacked regulated treatment guidelines. If that were the case, why didn't he work with legislators in Sacramento to craft a bill that he would find acceptable before it reached his desk? And Bill, would you care to elaborate on this and in other cases that Newsom was able to find a way to veto bills advanced by, by his own party? Yeah, it's uh, so. So, for those not familiar with the song and dance in uh, in Sacramento, uh, the legislature at the end of its session, uh, September fourteenth, has to produce bills if it wants to send them to the governor. They then go to the governor. He has thirty days to sign them or not. If he doesn't sign them, they become law automatically. So, the governor has to weigh in one way or the other. Um, two things that struck me, one you alluded to was just the sheer inefficiency of the system, Jonathan, with uh, the mushroom bill, and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, what stands out here is at the beginning of the 30 days, the first week or two, uh, Newsom vetoed a couple of measures uh, that came as a surprise, or at least it sparked these headlines of Newsom suddenly being centrist and cautious. And cynic than I am just seems to be awfully convenient for a governor who wants to become a more of a national figure. In other words, you veto these bills, which you think are kind of normal for California governor signed, he doesn't, and so he looks countercurrent. But the fact is, when you look at the 900 bills or so that he signs, he actually is kind of, you know, predictably progressive for the most part. Um, but the one bill that did catch my attention was the mushroom bill that you mentioned for this regard. It goes to the governor's desk. Uh, it's been you know, flirted with uh, for several years now. It goes to the governor's desk. So does he sign it or not? Well, he vetoes it. But when he vetoes it, Lee and Jonathan, he has a very specific message saying that a provision was missing from it. So here's the question that you got to in the beginning, Jonathan. If Newsom had known ahead of time he was going to veto a bill because it lacked that provision, why didn't A, 
he work with lawmakers beforehand <laughs> or B, just tell them don't bother sending me without it. Just in other words, it's a waste of everybody's time to send to the governor. Now, of the 900 bills that went to the governor, there are a handful that are just going to go for the sake of it. Just you make lawmakers happy by getting their bills out of there. But for the most part, this is a team operation. It's a Democratic legislature and a Democratic governor. So you think that they do a little better in cahoots. And we're going to be mentioning this guy's name several times here because we're going to get into a conversation soon about single player health care, which is suddenly alive in California. Jerry Brown was the master of this in at least two regards. Number one, he would signal legislature ahead of time, don't bother sending it to me, which he did with several with single pair a couple of times. But secondly, he would attach in his veto messages, lovely idea, but we simply can't afford it. And this came up time and again in the early news of veto measures where he would say, like the idea, we just can't pay for it. And so makes him look like a fiscal conservative. So Lee, so here we have it. So, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom becomes basically not Jerry Maguire, but Jerry Brown. Show me the money. Yeah, Bill, it's the the mushroom. Um, the mushroom bill just seemed like such a classic for Newsom in the sense that, given our given what a lot of people think he's going to be one of running for national office as president, um, this would have been such an obvious one for opponents to throw at him. Uh, you know, Governor Mushroom is yep. is uh, it would be the headline that we would be seeing. So um, I don't know to what extent this was his. Uh, yeah, but I, I agree. He, this should never come to his desk if he's obviously not going to sign it. Uh, so do you think this was his ability to try to do a little grandstanding and, and shutting this one down and trying to play the morality card about how there's a lot of regulations that should have been put into place and get a little bit of mileage out of that? Okay. Uh, well, Governor Mushroom, that's great. So we had Governor Moonbeam, now we have Governor Mushroom. I, I love it. Um, I, I, maybe the governor's thinking was this, put on my uh, Gavin Newsom cap here for a second. Um, he might have been thinking that here I am, the guy who really championed recreational marijuana in California. Remember, he was a big proponent of that uh, yeah. of that initiative in 2016, and, and it won. So now we have legalized pot in California. And it's a mess. And I've written about this for California on your mind, where you have a thriving underground market. There's actually more money made underground on marijuana in California than above ground because the taxes, plain and simple. So it's a bad system. It needs to be fixed. So maybe Newsom was thinking, Lee, that, you know, if I now put mushrooms into play, besides the fact that law enforcement's having a heart attack over this because it's hard to just kind of monitor this and just think of all the stone people driving around on mushrooms. Um, we just don't have control of it in terms of uh, in terms of economic control as well. So maybe he was really, really being cynical here. He was thinking five years from now, if I'm president of the United States or running for president of the United States, I don't want to be the guy who not only you know inflicted marijuana upon California in terms of being a mess, but now created the hot mess that is mushrooms. So, but I think you get onto something important here, Lee. That mushrooms are ultimately kind of a giggle uh, when you talk about it. just California shrooms. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah. And Bill, you know, it's interesting in that um, a lot of Newsom's vetoes, he tried to have this very somber tone about, oh, we just can't afford it. Show me the money. But on the other hand, he signed um, legislation that I thought was just uh, that I, I thought was just nuts. It's a bill called uh, Senate Bill 253. That requires the California Air Resources Board uh, to impose rules on large companies, that is those who have revenues exceeding a billion dollars per year, uh, you know, for example, Apple, Chevron, Walmart, uh, they have to disclose their carbon emissions. And they right. have to disclose those emissions not only from the electricity they use and their production, but by 2026, they're also somehow 
supposed to disclose emissions made by all of the producers in their supply chains and their customers, millions of customers. Um, I have absolutely no idea how they're gonna comply with this. This is a law with absolutely no benefit whatsoever, um, this uh, regulatory requirement. Um, unless you think about the, the enormous cost that could be imposed on corporations down the road that would lead them to be taxed on the basis of their carbon emissions as well as their customers' carbon emissions and supply chain carbon emissions. This is just an awful lot. Um, so there's a level of schizophrenia, I think, when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the bills that he didn't like, and he says we can't afford them, and then just crazy bills such as SB 253 um, that he likes uh, that imposes enormous costs on corporations with no benefits whatsoever for consumers. Uh, Lee, you're you're overlooking a gigantic political benefit here to 253. Uh, Newsom is going to hop on an airplane and put a lot of carbon in the sky and go to China so he can talk to Chinese leaders about climate change. Uh, this strikes me as, first of all, a really kind of illy-timed mission to China and that the world is looking at the Middle East and their kind of larger geopolitical questions about what our colleague Neil Ferguson calls the axis of ill will. This is Iran, China, and Russia basically uh, trying to destroy the world in bits and pieces. So I'm not sure it's a good thing for him to be going over there and shaking hands with Chinese officials and trying to have a big group hug about climate change. Um, but the big, the first here, for the thing with him to benefit here, it's he gets to put the word first in his press release because if there's one thing this governor has, it's a fetish with the word first. He just loves to sign bills and say that California is the first of the nation to do blank. But you're right, on climate change, the this bill is just a mystery in terms of its benefits. The compliance will be fascinating. And, you know, this is just creating more regulatory you know actions in California at a time. We don't need this. But look, you put the word first in front of this governor, he's going to pretty much leap at it. Yeah, and leap at it, including the lemmings jumping off the cliff. <laughs> he'd go off, and as he goes off, he'd be yelling first. Um, it's, uh, it never amazes me, um, some of the really bad logic that comes from, uh, from his mind. Uh, and this trip to China, that just seems like a non-starter. Uh, California can't negotiate anything with China about climate emissions. Um, but this will, as Billy should point out, this will give Newsom the opportunity uh, when the time comes down the road and he's running for national office to say, I'm the guy who went to China. I'm the guy that talked to Xi and come up with some <clears throat> sugar-coated description of what they talked about and the substantial progress he was able to make as California governor with China well, you, and climate you, change. You don't go all the way over there without some business in hand that you know will be done. So I suspect you'll probably be signing some things that were started in the uh, Schwarzenegger and Brown administrations. So we'll continue with him. But again, it's just to me, we're, the world's in a very complicated place right now. Two wars going on. And just to be jumping on a plane and going over to talk climate with China just really seems to be kind of current at really what the world's concerns are at the moment. It, it does seem to be quite tone deaf. Gentlemen, a bill that Governor Newsom didn't sign uh, this month or did not veto this month was Senate Bill 770, uh, which you write about in your column this week, Lee. As you describe in the article, Senate Bill 770, signed by Gavin, Gavin Newsom earlier this month, directs California's Health and Human Services Agency to work with the federal government to create one health finan financing system that would manage health care for all Californians. This is the first step to implementing a single payer plan because California receives large federal contributions for health care, including Medicare, all of which would need to be folded into a single payer system. Existing private insurance programs, as well as Medicare, would no longer exist. Well, Jonathan, this um, I think this is another 
example of you know Bill pointing to Newsom as saying, "I want to be first. I want to be first. Um, so Newsom wants to be first in terms of taking a major state and implementing single payer health care, which is what most of Europe has. Um, and single payer health care in Europe, for the most part, is crashed and burned. So this is again, it's absolutely horrible. It's, a, it's an absolutely horrible idea from the economic standpoint of getting benefits from healthcare dollars, um, and also the kind of health, the the, the type of the terrible health outcomes we're going to see based on the empirical record of, of single payer. Um, I think the only thing we can hope for is that it is going to be an enormous challenge to try to create single payer in California because it would eliminate Medicare and it would eliminate Medi-Cal, which is California's um, uh, Medicaid program. Those are just obviously huge, 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 uh, huge programs. Um, the, and, uh, you know, what What particularly surprised me about this is that um, it got very little press. I mean, this would be a life-changing program within the state because nearly everyone would fall under this uh, single-payer umbrella, except for very, very wealthy people. And I point out in my column that Newsom would be one of those very wealthy people who could afford to pay completely out of pocket for the doctor he wanted to see and for the procedure he wanted to have. Um, but just to give you some example of just how badly single payer has failed, um, I cite some statistics in the column, uh, including stats from um, Canada, where uh, I know that, that there's more MRI machines on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles than in the entire 5 million person province of British Columbia, which is of course where Vancouver is. And because of the enormous scarcity of <clears throat> MRI imaging in, uh, in Canada, um, patients are waiting so long, including, including patients who are suspected of having cancer, um, their tumors are doubling in size sometimes before they ever get imaging. And this is exactly what single payer does. It imposes no discipline on the demand side of the market. It constrains supply in terms of payments to providers, treatments, technologies such as imaging. Um, and you get these, you just get these terrible, terrible outcomes. Um, another example I gave was that the, uh, the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, which is the longest continuously operating single peri, single peri program, has been around since the end of World War II. Um, in a lot of areas in, in England, um, cataract surgery is not provided. Um, why is that? It's only co it costs $4,000 per eye, at least here in California, it costs $4,000 per eye. They don't have the budget for it. But instead of simply acknowledging that, the National Health Service in the UK says, well, cataract surgery is of quote, limited clinical value, unquote. It turns out cataract surgery is about 99% successful, very, very few side effects. It's a life-changing, it's a life-changing surgery. It can mean the difference between good vision and ultimately becoming blind. Um, but this is what single payer is. And um, it is terribly concerning that the media did not pick this up and question it, and that California voters are going to be in for just an enormous surprise if the state and the federal government figure out a way to make this happen.
Okay, Lee, uh, since I mentioned Jerry Brown, let's get into him for a second. So Jerry Brown governed California twice for eight years. He governed it for the eight years preceding Gavin Newsom. In 2017, Lee and Jonathan, he went to Washington and was asked by lawmakers about single-payer care. Obviously, he'd heard a bunch from Bernie Sanders on this, so he's asked about it. And Brown asked a very simple question, guys. Here was his question. He said, where do you get the extra money? And he added, this is the whole question. Now, Brown went on to point out that uh, during this conversation, the reporters said the overall cost of medical care in California equaled about 18% of the state's GDP, which is about $450 billion a year. And he added one last thought for the reporters, quote, you take a problem and say, I'm going to solve it by something that's even a bigger problem, which makes no sense. So Lee, in the crafting of this bill and now pushing it forward, has anyone talked about how it's going to be financed? Well, there was a bill a couple of years ago, Bill, that would have uh, CalSupri has imposed a substantial tax on California businesses to help fund it. Um, yeah. that, that, so that, 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 that bill failed. Um, but it's going to, it would be just a behemoth uh, in terms of dollars, in terms of administrative scope. And Bill, I just don't get it what taxpayers are thinking about, what voters are thinking about. They are going to be trusting their lives to the people who have brought you high-speed rail, to the people who brought you the Employment uh, Development Department that flushed $33.2 billion down the drain in fraudulent payments. Um, this is the gang that can't shoot straight. And yet, it seems like we're ready to turn our health choices and decisions over to government bureaucrats. And Bill, you know, what Sanders will often say uh, about single payer is uh, it's universal coverage and you can't be denied treatment. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's universal coverage, but many... you have to wait for the you have to wait for the treatment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tr a treatment is denied all the time. Right. Treatment is routinely denied. So that is a fib that's told all the time by Sanders and by those who advocate single payer, um, and it's. Coverage is not the issue. Um, for years, California has had close to 100% coverage, either within uh, employer-provided private programs, individuals buying private programs, or people falling into some public program like, uh, like Medicaid, uh, Medi-Cal. Medi-Cal uh, has 15.3 million enrollees in it. Mm -hmm. Virtually everyone in California is covered except for those who have those who are in the country illegally and are relatively young. Newsom did extend coverage to those in the country illegally, but who are relatively old. Right. Uh, so it's not an issue about coverage. Um, but this myth about you can't be you can't be denied treatment. Treatment denial happens all the time in single payer, and it just drives me up the uh, up the tree when people are willing to believe that. Let me ask you a mechanical question here, Lee. Um, as I understand it, this is SB 770 we're talking about. Uh, as I understand it, Lee, what this does is it directs the state's Health and Human Services Agency to work with federal partners on what the bill calls a unified health financing system. Uh, the agency would be required to submit an interim report by January 2025, a federal waiver framework by June of 25, and a final framework for state leaders by November of 25, Lee. Uh, here's what I'm trying to get my head around. Does this mean that we'd be looking at a ballot initiative in 2026? I'm asking because at all times, as, as our listeners will know, I go to the most cynical corners when it comes to Governor Newsom. And what could be more cynical than to put single payer on the ballot in 2026? And if it fails, you said, hey, I try. But if it passes, 
your successor is going to get elected November 2026. <laughs> It'll be his or her problem to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gavin's looking at this as a uh, a bit of a no lose. He can say, I kept my campaign promise and look, we got it on the ballot. And then uh, he's going to be he's going to be gone by the time the uh, by the time the mud hits the fan, so to speak. Well, it's going to be a very interesting ballot initiative because, uh, yes, California is progressive. You think the idea might sail through. But, Lee, Jonathan, if you look at the fate of bonds in the past uh, several cycles in California, bonds have not done too well. It's for a simple reason. People just don't want to spend money in these days. And so if you come along with single-payer care, and Lord knows what kind of dollar sign is attached to it, i got to believe that the opponents that have a pretty good hard time, pretty good time, not just with the message of government-run health care, but just also how is California going to possibly afford this? Because, yeah, Lee, as you mentioned before, uh, going after millionaires, I don't think taxing millionaires alone will do the job here. No, it won't. And, uh, you know, the more you go after millionaires, the more they leave uh, right. and see somewhere else. Um, and Bill, to give you an idea about budget, um, this year, the 15.3 million enrollees in uh, in Medi-Cal, that budget is about $140 billion. So scale that up by a factor of approximately three and, um, and <laughs> you're... You're at about uh, what four hundred and twenty billion dollars. I'm sure once you kick in inflation and additional administrative costs, you're looking at half a trillion dollars. Um, and Bill, that's in a healthcare system that's performing abysmally, both in terms of administrative failures. There are continued deficiencies within the system that pop up all the time on the California State Auditor's uh, reports of uh, of Medi-Cal. Um, Reimbursements are so low, Bill. In, in my column, I noted um, some providers getting as little as $18 reimbursed per patient. Right. And um, there are doctors who are saying, look, I've got a patient. I referred them out to a specialist. These, some, of these, some of these patients are already waiting two years to see a specialist. Or they've got to travel or they've got to travel hundreds of miles to find someone who accepts Medi-Cal and, and doesn't have a two-year wait list. So, um, yeah, what, what, what troubles me here is that um, single payer just flats the basic economic laws of supply and demand. Um, you artificially try to constrain spending, uh, supply drops. Um, you, provide no, um, you provide no skin in the game on the demand side. That is, when you go to England, uh, co-pays are zero. Um, demand skyrockets. Um, all that can be done is that people wait in line. And you've got people waiting in line who are in <laughs> terrible pain, low quality of life, and in some cases, um, who are probably going to die before they receive before they receive treatment. Yeah, I think Jonathan stumbled on something important earlier uh, where he asked whether or not this is in the Democratic mainstream. And I think, yes, if you're seeking the Democratic presidential nomination in this day and age, you've probably got to say I'm in favor of single payer care. And again, to be a cynic here, Lee and Jonathan, what's better than a governor who can say, not only am I in favor of it, but by gosh, we put a program together, we put it in front of the voters, the voters just couldn't do it, or better yet, we passed it. But I'm not there to watch over it. So I think it's all about checking a box if you're Gavin Newsom. Yeah. Yep. And the uh, and Bill, your point about I'm first. Yep. I'm first, I'm first, I'm first. Gentlemen, uh, 
let's discuss a column that uh, Lee wrote last week for California Undermined uh, called California's Chilling Attempt to Muzzle Physician Speech. Uh, the article centers on a bill that Governor Newsom signed last fall that if and when enforced would charge California physicians with professional misconduct and would possibly result in loss of their license if they were to question the medical community's consensus opinions regarding COVID-19. Uh, Lee, you write... Quote, but like so many California laws, AB 2098 is vague, poorly written, and represents gross government overreach. Lee, just how badly is the bill written, and how much does it overreach? Uh, Jonathan, the bill was terribly written. Um, and what, in my opinion, was even worse than the awful language in the bill is the, uh, is the reason uh, the bill was written. So the reason the bill was written is because, uh, and I quote, um, major, and this, this is actually um, in the text of the bill, um, major news outlets claimed that physicians and healthcare providers were in, among the most important promulgators of misinformation and disinformation about COVID. So all you needed was a couple of newspaper stories uh, alleging that doctors were spreading misinformation about COVID to suddenly get a law that Newsom, that Newsom signed um, to say a physician would be subject to punishment of professional misconduct if they made a statement um, that was against the mainstream views about COVID. Okay, so now we get to the point of how badly was it written? Well, what's the mainstream consensus views? I mean, COVID was rapidly evolving. Scientific opinions, people's perceptions of disease were changing, you know, every week, every month. Right. It was essentially, it was essentially non-actionable. Um, and it also, it not only blocks people's First Amendment freedom of speech rights, but it also was likely violating 14th Amendment due process clause, because what is a physician supposed to do when they say, okay, did, is, is, you make some statement about COVID saying, hey, my patients have done well on this particular treatment, or my patients haven't done well on this particular treatment. Who's to say that's consistent with the mainstream or not? Um, so long story short, uh, a, a handful of physicians challenged this in court. Uh, temporary restraining order, uh, an injunction was put into place. The judge agreed that it was terribly written, that it was likely violating First Amendment and 14th Amendment rights. Um, and, you know, attorneys will say, um, if you get a temporary injunction against, uh, against you, you're probably going to lose. So the law was stopped. Uh, then about two, well, uh, six weeks ago, the attorneys representing this handful of physicians uh, then filed a motion for summary dismissal, that is to eliminate the law uh, altogether. Um, now, here's where it gets really interesting. State Bill 815 was signed by Newsom, uh, and as Bill pointed out, all this flurry of bills hit Newsom's desk over the last month or so. SB 815 was one signed by Newsom. SB 815 was simply a uh, regularly occurring um, recommission of California's medical board. Basically, pro, it was basically a pro forma. But within SB 815 was a clause that eliminated the muzzle on California physicians regarding COVID. 
no one has come forward to say where the elimination of the previous law, how that got into SB 815, who did it? The author of SB 815 said, I didn't do it. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it came from the governor's office. Newsom didn't say one word about this. So from the standpoint of every once in a while, good things happen, this law is no longer an issue, but it's chilling from the standpoint that Jonathan, let me let me read you um, let me read you the text of the law, and then I will I will share with you Newsom's interpretation of the law. Okay, so the text says it will be professional and will be unprofessional conduct for this for a physician to disseminate misinformation related to COVID including false or misleading information regarding the nature and risks of the virus is prevention and treatment. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. this, is what, this is what Newsom said. I signed it because it would apply only to those egregious instances in which a physician is acting with malicious intent or clearly deviating from the required standard of care while interacting directly with, with, with one of their patients. I can't imagine how you can read this text of the bill. It shall, it shall constitute unprofessional conduct to disseminate misinformation related to COVID to how Newsom interprets it, interprets it. Only those egregious instances in which a licensee is acting with malicious intent. They're two totally different things. Right. I have absolutely no idea where that came from, but the law has now disappeared uh, under the radar. No one's willing to say how it disappeared. Newsom won't talk about it. Nobody in the Senate will talk about it. Um, but again, it's just another example of uh, California just running roughshod over people's rights and then not being willing to acknowledge that, hey, you know what? We maybe went overboard on this. So, Lee, I have two questions for you. One, do the names Scott Atlas or Jay Bonacharya appear anywhere in this legislation? Because... Dr. J, these are both Hoover fellows, by the way, but they also have had past to current affiliations with the Stanford Medical School as well, teaching over there. Jay Bhattacharya was very outspoken during COVID, uh, came up the Great Barrington Declaration, questioning really a lot of things the government was doing, proven right in the long run. Scott Atlas not only did the same question, a lot of COVID policy, but actually served in the Trump White House briefly as an advisor as well. We kind of feel like these guys are being targeted. But the other question, Lee, is let's say that I'm a doctor and I run afoul of this. Who is hearing me? In other words, if I had to go before some sort of tribunal to be heard on this, am I going to get a fair jury or is this just going to be a bunch of very like-minded people appointed by the governor to decide my fate, which will be a fait accompli? Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, uh, <clears throat> both Scott and Jay have been really vilified by the medical profession. Um, and Bill, as you note, um, a lot of their perspectives and opinions, um, which both blended economic analysis with medical opinions, and focused on the costs and benefits and the trade-offs involved the various COVID policies, um, they were spot on. Yeah, you know, particularly when it came to came to issues such as uh, shutting down shutting down in-person instruction in schools. Both Scott and Jay uh, thought those were terrible ideas. Now it's looking like they were absolutely right. Those were terrible. Those were terrible, terrible ideas. Um, so. It's very disturbing just how much the medical community uh, just rushed to judgment about um, and impugned both doctors, both Jay and Scott, impugned um, their motivations um, and <clears throat> wouldn't even really listen. 
Um, but it seems this is uh, it seems this is where we are now. Um, it's going to be do as I say, and if you don't, um, you're going to be fined for misconduct, and you might even lose your license. I think it's fine to have a system where there is some sort of board to appear before. I mean, individuals in all professions should be held accountable. But if it's an echo chamber, I don't understand the purpose of having the board. But that's that's just again my very cynical take. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 Bill, you know, uh, you're you're up at Stanford every day. Um, a, a lot, a lot of the Stanford community uh, was uh, just remarkably critical, and I think, <clears throat> again, rushed to very negative judgments about um, Atlas and Bhattacharya. Uh, and as time has evolved, and and as their opinions proved to be much more um, correct than the quote uh, consensus views. Um, as far as I can tell, the, stand, the those at Stanford who have criticized them have not changed their minds, have not said, you know what, maybe they were right um, and I should apologize. And as far as I can tell, none of that has ever happened. Yeah. And gentlemen, as the war between uh, Israel and Hamas uh, wages on, uh, the protests, protests are occurring on college campuses throughout the Golden State, including where you are at uh, UCLA, Lee. Uh, students and faculty at UCLA, UC Berkeley, Stanford, USC, and Cal State Long Beach told Los Angeles Times reporters that the climate on their campus on their campuses has created a chilling effect on speech and efforts to, to discuss the conflict civilly. Lee, first, can we get your reflections on the environment at UCLA? And then, Bill, can you discuss what has happened at Stanford University, uh, where, uh, where we work at the Hoover Institution? Um, well, Jonathan and Bill, it's um, I think there's a couple of points here that are that are interesting to discuss. Um, one is the tension involved on college campuses, which are supposed to be havens of free speech. Um, and the second is the lack of success among a lot of college administrators in terms of having a clear policy towards implementing that. Um, and so what we've seen is, um, I'll get to you Sally, in a second, we've seen a lot of publicity, a lot of terrible publicity about Harvard and University of Pennsylvania. Um, Larry Summers, who was um, Treasury Secretary um, under Clinton, I believe he was the head of Obama's uh, National Economic Council. He's a heavyweight in terms of democratic economics. He's a professor at Harvard. He was his former president of Harvard. He came right. out incredibly, very critical of Harvard uh, because Harvard had what some like twenty five or thirty student groups signed just a nut, you know, a nutty letter saying right. Israel's getting what they deserve, and whatever violence is taking place in the Middle East is all the fault of Israel. Um, Harvard was Harvard was silent for one day, two days, maybe three days. Harvard was silent. Then finally, their new president Claudine Gay came by and and said uh, and denounced Hamas. Um, but this was the same university that within hours of the George Floyd story jumped all over that. Right. So if you're a university uh, president, you can either say, we're gonna steer clear of all political discussions. We're not gonna make statements about issues that aren't squarely within the framework of the mission of the university. That's one way to handle it. Another way to handle what she should have said was to say, um, we have we have freedom of speech here at Harvard. Nonetheless, um, I'm going to distance myself and everyone else I know here at Harvard from these student groups that I completely disagree with. We'll, we'll yeah. respect the right to have those statements, but 
I, I can't tell you, I, I can't disagree with many more. Um, and then over at Penn, John Huntsman, uh, former governor of Utah, a huge donor, huge donor to Penn, um, has said, we're going to cut off, you know, there's no more checks going from the Huntsman family, University of Pennsylvania, which again, had kind of milk toasty responses um, to, uh, to what has happened. Uh, now, UCLA, um, again, like all other campuses, UCLA has been struggling to try to manage freedom of speech uh, issues. Um, there were a couple of professors from gender studies who had planned on having a quote emergency teach-in about Palestine um, shortly after uh, shortly after October seventh, um, and what I found out is that both faculty um, who are in the gender studies department had offered students and their classes, and then those taking other gender studies classes, extra credit if they were going to attend these quote emergency teach-in. Um, seminars or lectures about uh, about the Palestinian Israeli situation, um, and you know, Bill and Jonathan, what what is uh, what is just so ironic about this is that gender studies is largely about LGBTQ plus, right? LGBTQ plus in the middle of the Middle East and hardcore Muslim countries, um, you would be safe for about one second. In those countries, there's no place you'd rather be than be in the United States. Um, so there's an enormous disconnect between the support they offer to Palestinians and Islam um, and their unwillingness to criticize uh, a terrorist organization. Um, the common the common theme I see on at UCLA and other college campuses is oh, there's collective punishment of 2 million people who don't deserve this. And there's never the recognition that Hamas is collectively punishing these 2 million people, and they've been doing this for the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, you asked about Stanford. Stanford's kind of an interesting place to look at because historically it's not the same hotbed of uh, activism as either Lee's UCLA was back in the Vietnam days or Berkeley, pretty much whenever anything happens. Stanford's, shall we say, more laid back. If you uh, have been on the campus the past couple of weeks, you may have noticed that there were uh, pro-Palestine bedsheets that were hanging around campus. The uh, university asked them to be taken down, but only because they were hanging in the wrong places, not because they didn't care for the message. You walk on the sidewalks of Stanford and you'll find entry uh, Israel chalk um, along the sidewalks, but it's not like there are people marching in the thousands, begging drums every day, asking for the war to end. Um, there are two things that are telling about Stanford. One is the home to some of the smartest kids in America. You're 18, 19, 20 years old, and you may be smart, but you are not necessarily knowledgeable. Uh, certainly when it comes to history, certainly when it comes to foreign policy, and certainly in the incredibly complicated world that is the Middle East, it's, well, it's like being of that age and being a new driver, but you sure as heck don't know how a combustible engine works. And that's kind of kids with the Middle East. They just they just understand everything that's worked there. Uh, it's funny, three decades ago when I, when I worked for Pete Wilson, he's governor of California, we had a problem with anti-Semitism in California. This is when Schindler's List came out and kids were going to see the movie and they were laughing during the movie and just, you know, a, a girl would get slaughtered in the Holocaust and a kid in the crowd would laugh at it and make a joke. And this is awful. We realized something has to be done. Uh, so we worked with Steven Spielberg and we put together, it was called The Schindler's Project, which was uh, having kids go see the movie, but then having kids actually study the Holocaust in the classroom so they understood what was going on. I think something similar could be done in this day and age with the movie Munich, which is also a Spielberg movie, I think released in 2005. 
and it has to do with how the Israeli government reacted to the slaughter of the uh, Israeli athletes at the 72 Summer Games in Munich. And it's a nuanced movie because it shows the brutality of all of this, but it has Hamas agents really kind of weighing the with their moral conscience about, about killing the bad guys, but also trying to limit the collateral damage. So what it shows is, yes, Israel has a much more nuanced approach to reprisal as opposed to what the media have. You believe that they're just essentially the incredible Hulk on steroids is going out and destroying everything in its way. Um so one issue with Stanford is the kids, but the other one, Lee and Jonathan, is the professors. Uh, there is a uh, much uh, published uh, story out of Stanford about a lecturer, not a tenured professor, but a lecturer who was teaching a class of freshmen and asked the Jewish kids in the class to raise their hands. When they did, he asked them to stand up. And then he told them to go take their possessions and sit in the corner of the classroom. And they further braided them by saying, now you know what it's like to be a Palestinian. And now you know what it's like to be to be an uh, Israeli and be a colonizer and Lee, I don't think this is why you got in the teaching profession to shame kids in front of other kids and humiliate them. And I just read that story and I wonder, boy, if it were my kid, I'm probably talking to a lawyer right now about what to do. But I guess, sadly, this is university life in America in 2023, Lee, where you know, professors, teachers, lecturers don't leave their biases at the door. They come into the classroom and they push their ideology. Yeah. And Bill, um, taking that one step further, there's an awful lot of college courses now being offered um, in humanities and social sciences where the purpose of the court is not really being taught. Um, what's being taught is, uh, is a political agenda that's held by the faculty member. Um, so whether it's, uh, you know, so whether it's uh, uh, Shakespeare, um, you're you're going to be you're going to learn about the professor's agenda and their their opinions about Trump and their opinions about Israel and their opinions about Palestine. Um, you're not going to hear too much about the Twelfth Night. Um, right. And you know when we look at um, when we look at the public's confidence in higher education, 30, 40 years ago, um, it was favorable probably by eighty percent, eighty five percent. Bill, today, favorability of higher education is down in the 30s, and yep. this is a reason why. Um, at UCLA, things just changed um, enormously uh, after the 2016 election with Trump. Um, I've been at UCLA since 1999. Between 1999 and uh, November 2016, um, I personally didn't notice a lot of crazy political stuff going on campus. I mean, I think it did, but it was somewhat under the, under the radar. Um, after Trump's election, things just changed enormously, um, yeah. and they haven't they haven't gone back in, in in these seven years. Well, I think that's kind of the new norm between Trump's election. You mentioned uh, George Floyd, where you know essentially just you know we had a very loud conversation about that. Now we're having one about Israel. Um, one thing about universities is I think they learn they need to learn how to better communicate at Stanford at least. Um, the MO is for the university president to put out a press release when something happens. It ends up just being a very long word salad that's been written obviously by about a dozen people and just it goes on and on and on. And it manages Lee and Jonathan to kind of be the worst of both worlds. It you know, it just takes too long to read and it doesn't really say anything at the same time. I I think if you were a CEO working for a corporation and had a board of directors to report to um, or a politician or a voters report too, you couldn't last long, but university professors are a different animal. But I just wish universities would be a little more declarative in what they say and also kind of have equal standards. I'd like to see them equate anti-Semitism with racism, but I guess we're not there yet. No, we're not there yet. And um, yeah, and, there, and there's a lot of, um, no, there's a lot of gobbledygook uh, that comes out. Um, 
it's lots of words and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of discussion about people are hurting and and we mourn the loss of life and if you need help there's campus resources for this um and okay it's fine to say that but um you look at any of these statements uh certainly the first statements that, that have come out not the ones that came out after university presidents realize that they're getting they're getting pilloried um and there's just no clarity there's no clarity about what the policies are uh it would have been very very easy for harvard for example to shut this down immediately um and yet they have one of their their a former president uh i don't remember his exact quote but um he said something along the lines of it sickens it sickens my stomach that the <laughs> university is not uh, distancing themselves from these 30 crazy student groups. Uh, that's all they needed to do. Um, but that's not what that's not what uh, college education is anymore, Bill. No, you're right. Well, as always, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you for your time. Well, actually, can I jump in here and add one last thing? We have breaking news. Uh, I think Gavin Newsom must listen to our podcast because I just saw over my uh, phone here, he's going to Israel. Oh, wow. He's going to go to Israel before he goes to uh, China. Um, this is interesting politics, again, to be the resident cynic here. Uh, Kathy Hoichel, the governor of New York, just went to Israel and had a pretty good-looking trip in terms of uh, public relations-wise. So I hope that somebody in Israel invited the governor. I hate to think that he has to go because she went, but he is uh, going to head over there. I'm not sure exactly what he's going to say or do, but uh, there he is. So getting back, Lee and Jonathan, to our conversation about Gavin Newsom kind of checking foreign policy boxes. There you go. Well, again, thank you for your time. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Lee Ohanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mervoida sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.